Peter Capelli's most recent book, Why Good People Can't Get Jobs, The Skills Gap and What Companies Can Do About It, has inspired a reaction from just about every group with a stake in today's workforce, employers, employees, recruiters, academics, and media commentators. In his book, Capelli debunks the argument we hear so often from employers that applicants don't have the skills that today's jobs require. Instead, he puts much of the blame on companies themselves, including their lack of information about the costs of hiring and training employees, and also on computerized hiring systems that can make qualified job candidates harder, not easier to find. Peter, thanks for joining us. You cover a lot of ground in this book, but one of your themes is that given the weak economy and bleak job market, companies have a bigger pool of job applicants and therefore can be more selective in hiring. Yet these companies still claim they can't find candidates with the requisite skills. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think it's um, important to begin by remembering that employers control everything about the process. So employers define the job, and they create the requirements for the job. Then they decide how the word gets out to people, recruiting-wise. They set the rate of pay, which helps determine how attractive the job is. And then they handle the selection part, where you look at the applicants and you sort them out. Uh, it's you know important to begin with the obvious point, there just aren't enough jobs to go around right now. So employers can certainly be picky, but we're not really talking about just being picky here, you know. Um, it's not surprising that employers might actually search more, and it might take them longer to hire now because there are so many candidates to look at. You know, why grab the first one when you have this long queue that you could look at? But the real unusual thing, and certainly the negative thing from everybody's perspectives, is those employers who say, look, we're just not hiring or we're waiting a very long time to hire because we can't find what we want. And I think the place we have to begin to answer that question is back with the employers who are making all those decisions about the process. Are they doing anything wrong? Well, clearly they are because there's this mismatch between people looking for jobs and employers saying they can't find uh, people to fill them. Um, I think one of the one of the um, one of the issues that you raise is what you call the Home Depot view of the hiring process, uh, which basically says that filling a job vacancy is like replacing a part in a washing machine. You simply find someone who does the exact same job as that broken part, and plug him into the wash cycle, uh, and that's it. But then companies then feel they don't have to fill that vacancy and they don't really have any sense of uh, of when having vacant jobs begins to hurt their business, hurts their expansion, hurts their whatever. So isn't that part of the problem is that companies, because they feel they can't find the people, therefore will delay hiring them, just put that work on the existing employees? Well, I think that's certainly part of the problem and I think um, part of the problem too is that the internal accounting systems in most organizations are so poor that they can't tell what it costs them to keep a position vacant. So they easily know how much it costs to employ somebody, but they can't measure the contributions from employing that person. So in most companies, given their accounting systems, it actually looks like they're saving money by keeping positions vacant. And if you think that's the story, then you're obviously you know, in no rush uh, to hire. So I think it, it sort of begins there, and that's you know, clearly not a good thing for the society. It's not a good thing for the employers, but it begins with their own problem, and that is 
the way their internal accounting is designed, you know, it sort of encourages you not to hire. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you also say that part of the problem is that companies aren't paying market wages. Um, they're trying to lowball, uh, basically, the, the job market. But why should they pay market wages when they can get employees cheaply? Well, the thing is they can't. That's what they're claiming, right? So th- there's a survey done by Manpower that asks uh, employers if they're having trouble finding people to hire. And in that survey, about 11% say the problem they're having is they can't get people to accept the jobs at the wages they're paying. Mm -hmm. So this is admitting. 11% are saying we're not paying enough. So if 11% admit it, my guess is the real number is probably double that. We're not very good at identifying um, problems that we create ourselves. And if they're admitting, 10% is probably much greater than that. So that's certainly part of it. Now, you know, maybe you can't blame them for trying, but um, if they're not finding, don't call it a skills gap. Don't call yeah. it a skills mismatch. You're just being cheap. Right, right. right. Uh, you also, one, one of your chapters in the book is called A Training Gap, Not a Skills Gap. Uh, and you point out, there, you have some figures that show that in 1979, young workers received an average of two and a half weeks of training per year. By 1991, only 17% of young employees reported getting any training during the previous year. And by last year, only 21% that they had re- said they received training during the f- previous five years. And um, you said that especially hurts work-based training programs like apprenticeships. So really a huge part of the so-called skills gap is, comes from the weak employer effort to promote internal training for either current employees or future hires. Is that part of this? Right. I, I think the, you know, the, the story that one hears, particularly around policy community, is that employers can't find the people they want to hire because schools are failing and kids aren't coming out with the right academic degrees or the right knowledge. If you actually look at the data from employers themselves, when they report the problems they're having with recruiting, they never talk about academic skills as being near the top of the list. In fact, their complaints have been consistent for the 30 years or so I've been looking at this. And their complaints are the ones, frankly, that older people always have about younger people. They're not conscientious enough. Uh, their workplace attitudes are not diligent enough. They don't want to work hard enough, you know, those sorts of things. So they're not looking, actually, for young people out of school at all, really. When you look at what they want, they want experience. Everybody wants somebody with three to five years' experience. What they're really after are the skills that you can't learn in a classroom, what you can only learn by doing the job itself. So the craziness about the hiring requirements in most cases, employers are looking for somebody who is currently doing exactly the same job someplace else. So that's partly why you see these requirements that they don't want to look at an applicant who's currently unemployed. And the reason is because they want somebody who's currently doing the same job right now. The problem is nobody wants to give those people right out of school experience. Nobody wants to take somebody who's never done this job before and train them. Now, I can understand why it's better, easier if you're an employer to hire somebody who's already been trained, uh, or it seems like it's better, but it's creating this skills problem because nobody wants to give people that initial experience. And again, you know, in many cases, it would pay off to take people who are really qualified in many ways, except for these quite specific skills, 
and help them get training. You can pay them less while you're training them. Mm -hmm. You know, you can require that they get some of these skills before you engage them. But because of the accounting systems, employers, for the most part, have no idea what it would cost them to train somebody. And they have no idea whether they're actually saving money by trying to chase these people who already have jobs and hire them. So it's, it's kind of one of the catch-22s that your book seems to be filled with. I mean, employers don't want to train their employees because they fear they'll leave the company, which employees actually are doing more and more frequently these days. Right. Uh, and then therefore all that effort and expense will have been wasted, but that means it's increasingly hard for employers to find trained job applicants. So it's, you know, this seems like there's a, an impasse here. There's certainly a catch-22 for the employees. Employees. Right, right. That, right. that you can't even get your foot in the door because you have to have experience to get a job. For the employer, it's worth pointing out that employers used to do all this training. Uh, there are ways that you can train and recoup the benefits from it. You know, apprenticeship programs, for example, a long-standing uh, approach to have the applicants pay as they go mm -hmm. because they're doing work as they're learning. The way we treat we train doctors is the same. The way we train consultants and accountants exactly the same. Those firms lose virtually everybody, you know, the accounting firms, the consulting firms in five years. But along the way, the people are learning while they're working. So they're getting trained, but the company's still making money off them, even though they all learn. It isn't that hard to figure out how any employer could do something like this, or most any employer, but there's just kind of a knee-jerk reaction that says, we're not going to do it at all. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that there's discrimination against unemployed job applicants for a number of reasons. Maybe companies feel they don't, aren't up to date on their skills. Um, maybe they're older workers. So is there any way around this short of federal regulations, which of course are no doubt hard to enforce, uh, that bars such discrimination? Well, you know, the older worker one is, is, I think, particularly important because for the most part, older workers have everything that those employers say that they want in new hires. Better work attitudes, which older right. workers have. Experience doing the work, which older workers have. Um, they don't need ramp up time, they don't need training, or they don't need as much. And yet there's still widespread discrimination against older workers, and there are laws against it. It still seems to happen. You know, I think the problem begins really with employers understanding their own self-interest, and, and I think that's the irony here. I'm not making any argument that employers ought to do something simply for the social good. It's just not in their interest to do what they're doing now, which is to chase the same small group of people who already are employed someplace else, that it makes sense to train people. It makes sense to give people a chance. It makes sense to be more realistic about what your job requirements are so that you could actually fill the positions. So I think that's the, that's the real puzzle about all this, is employers are not doing what's in their self-interest. Yeah. So how could they get better at this? Well, you know, maybe... Um, they could get help from people outside, and that includes the academic world, to just point out how expensive it might be to simply chase outside hires all the time. Uh, for example, our colleague here, Matthew Bidwell, has done an interesting study comparing people who were hired from the outside to people who were promoted from within. And people who were promoted from within do much better on costs and productivity um, accounts as well, which doesn't mean you should never hire from the outside, but you know it certainly can pay off to develop from within. So I think the employers have to begin with better information. And the irony about this is if you looked at any other aspect of their business, 
any part that they're buying, for example, they have incredible detail about how much each supplier contributes for them, the costs of having a shortfall of inventory. When it comes to people, they've got no idea about any of these things. What Has the role of the typical company HR department been enhanced, minimized, made irrelevant? In this, in this hiring process these days? Well, I think part of the story is that the HR departments have been gutted uh, over the last 20 years, and particularly in this recession, there's a lot of downsizing, but especially in HR. The training departments are largely gone out of most companies, and a lot of the recruiting uh, functions are gone as well. So, you know, in the old days, you ask a hiring manager to create a job description. There would be an HR person there to help them do it or to push back if they had requirements which are crazy or out of whack with the market. Now those folks are gone. Yeah. And uh, basically, those wish lists of hiring requirements get baked right into applicant tracking software. And human eyes rarely ever see uh, applicants until the very end of the process. Yeah. So, you know, we, we've tried to push the automation, I think, too far. There's nothing wrong with the automation per se, and you have to have it to screen all these applicants. But trying to get rid of the people altogether means that we're relying on the machines to make the decisions, and human judgment is, is still pretty important. Also, a lot of the applicants for jobs have learned how to game the, the system in terms of putting in the keywords they need to, to add to their resumes or letter cover letters, whatever. So it's, um, you know, it, it seems like it, as sophisticated as these, as these software systems are, there are ways to get around them anyway. Right. I think that that's a great point because the people who can game the system, you'll see them make it through the application process. And the people who don't know how to game the system, you never see them. And is that really what you want to be hiring is right. people who can game the system. I mean, I suppose it tells you something about people, right. but it doesn't tell them, doesn't tell you much about who has the requisite skills. Right. It doesn't tell you much about character or ability to manage yourself or, or anything like that. Or the things employers say they want. Right. right. Um, you also sort of, um, I wouldn't say you blame the press, but you kind of give them a little tweak because... Um, they prefer, for example, headlines that say companies having uh, trouble finding skilled workers as opposed to companies static over its new hires. Um, but the press isn't likely to change. <laughs> I don't see them getting any more analytical or in-depth. <clears throat> so how does one get the true facts out there? Well, it, it's, it was a real puzzle to me, which is partly why I wrote this book, that you would see so many of these anecdotal stories, and then you would see uh, around Washington so many people picking up those stories and assuming that uh, this is what's going on in the economy as a whole. Uh, so in this book, um, basically what we, what I do in Why Good People Can't Get Jobs is um, look at some of the real data. And, and when you look at the data, you can see that there's really no truth to any of these claims. Right? Yeah. You can see that employers are not doing what these anecdotes suggest, for example. Um, what I guess I hope the reporters would do is just ask a couple of questions. You know, employers, when they say they've got a skills gap, that there are no applicants out there that meet their needs, they're self-diagnosing the situation. What's really happening is they're just not able to hire, now, but you don't know why that is. Right? And the skills gap story is their diagnosis, basically saying there's nobody out there. Right. When in fact it turns out it's typically the case that their requirements are crazy, they're not paying enough, or their applicant screening is so 
rigid that nobody gets through. Yeah. Uh, I was intrigued by uh, a comment in your book that every generation thinks it has experienced this profound technological change. Um, But then you you point out, imagine witnessing the rise of wildly available electricity, telephones, and cars, cars all in the same decade. So you say there's no evidence that our current period, you know, as computer-driven as it is, represents one of unusual technological change. But that does seem a little hard to believe, given the, the sort of transformative changes in healthcare, um, nanotechnology, these areas. I mean, don't you don't you think this is really a, a an historic transformative era we're in, or not? Well, I think the the question is really: is there something that's happened to jobs that make the skill requirements go up so much that we would think that there's this mismatch? Right. That that's really the question, right? right? And um, you know, there are always some jobs that require new technologies. There are always some jobs that don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look at the array of jobs in the U.S., the ones that are growing and shrinking, you see, you know, this this really kind of, you know, two poles. There are some high-skilled jobs that are increasing in the demand, and there are some really low-skilled jobs like healthcare, uh, home healthcare workers, which are really increasing in demand. And overall, you know, there's just not that much change. There's nothing systematic that's cutting across all jobs. You know, we talk about computers and IT being so important now, but, you know, personal computers came to the office um, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, right? So you said, when was the first time? Can anybody remember not having a PC on their desk? Well, there are people who can, uh, but uh, for most workers now, they can't. Mm -hmm. They've been there for a long time. And I think we're fascinated by the fact that young people uh, seem to be uh, all on their Blackberries or their their iTunes all the time. Um, But, you know, if we think about how older folks use technology, it's it's really the same, right? The difference just is young people are talking to their friends 24 hours a day, and we talk to our friends kind of rarely, right? <laughs> so it's not that uh, the technology is different, it's just that they're more intensively using the things that we're paying attention to. But we use them as well. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, what about the claim that our graduates are less skilled and qualified than foreign counterparts? I mean, I think you you cited an, an OECD report that showing that U.S. students are about in the middle of industrialized countries. But you also say that's partly because um, places like China, India, for example, are now catching up to the U.S. in terms of education and, and job training. But still, is it something the U.S. should be worried about? You know, I think this narrative we were talking about earlier about... Um, skills gap problems because schools are failing is powerful because there's a view in the U.S. that schools are failing. And that's not true on average. You know, schools have been getting slightly better over time for the last 20 years. There are still some terrible schools in the U.S. They get all the attention. Uh, But the story in the U.S. is really one about variance. There are terrific schools and there are terrible schools. When you compare us to countries in the rest of the world, we are about in the middle and we've been roughly there for a while. Um, The top five countries for uh, student academic achievement in high school, uh, three of those are actually cities, really. Singapore, Shanghai, and Hong Kong are in the top five, right? Um, So if you look at our competitors in in Europe, um, we're about you know, in the middle. The difference is that many more people go to college in the U.S. than in most parts of the world. So the typical employee in the U.S. has more education than in most countries. 
Now, some people argue, you know, that uh, we don't have enough education. Um, and, you know, I suppose you could always make those arguments about what is enough. Um, but the, again, the simple point is employers are not complaining about lack of academic skills among, among job applicants. And employee, employees and students, particularly in the U.S., are killing themselves trying to figure out which jobs, you know, which career tracks will give them jobs, which majors will give them jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this belief that we don't have enough STEM graduates, science, technology, mm -hmm. engineering, math sort of stuff. Engineering jobs, some of them are hot supply now, but five years ago they weren't. They were in hot supply before that, and then five years before that they weren't. Mm -hmm. So if you're entering one of these engineering fields, you're really making a bet about whether it happens to be hot the year you go on the job market. And if it's not hot, you've got the same problems of everybody else. And you've got the additional problem in that those skills go out of date very quickly, especially IT degrees. So the idea that you're going to have a career as a computer programmer, for example, um, is probably not true because your skills become obsolete. You're pushed out. You've got to figure out how to get retooled yourself. In terms of math skills and you know math majors, science majors, it's very difficult for them to get jobs in math or in science. Uh, if you look, for example, here at Penn, most of our students with those majors end up doing consulting and investment banking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not the case that industry is clamoring for math majors and biology majors and they just can't find them. That's not what's going on. Right. Um, the subtitle of your book, The Skills Gap and What Companies Can Do About It, suggests there are solutions to these issues. You've touched on this uh, already, but what if you had to pick two two or three things that could, that could kind of alleviate this problem, what would they be? I, you know, I think if I was an employer, I would first begin, if I was a CEO, and actually I, I put this to a group of CEOs uh, just this last week, do I know what it's costing me to keep a vacancy open? Right. Right? Okay. It's got to be costing Nail me something. Right. Do I know what it's costing me to train somebody versus hiring uh, somebody and chasing them on the outside? Um, and I think if you have answers to those questions, first you start realizing that you know it does cost something to keep vacancies open, mm -hmm. and searching forever for somebody that purple squirrel, as they say in IT, and that's somebody who is so unique and so unusual, so perfect, but you never see them. Um, that's not a good idea. So maybe we ought to revise our hiring uh, requirements and just get somebody in there and start doing the job. Could we figure out ways to do training so that we could make money on it the same way that accounting firms do and that craft unions used to in terms of trade skills? Right. Uh, can we figure out what makes sense for us rather than just going with our gut, uh, because our gut is probably wrong. You know, that we just got to keep waiting till we find the purple squirrel, that we yeah. can't train, that we can't give people time to get up to speed. W why don't we consider other options? Okay. And, and that just doesn't make any sense not to. And lastly, what would you advise employees? Well, I think the first thing is to remember that uh, if you're looking for a job, it's to a large extent, not your fault that you don't have one. There just aren't enough jobs for the number of people looking for them now, and the shortfall is enormous. Um, so don't take it so personally if you can't find a job. 
the second thing is, given the way the system seems to work now, and particularly how automated things are, uh, the best advice, which is not new advice, is to see if you can get around it, frankly, to see if you can get to a real person where you can make the case about why you have the skills in ways perhaps that aren't completely obvious from your resume to do the particular job that you're after. Always helps to put yourself in the shoes of a hiring manager um, who wants to minimize their risk, understandably, and wants to find somebody who is really motivated to do the job and see if you can make that case to them. Great. Well, Peter, thanks. This has been very interesting.